Jewish survival. So Judaism has flourished continuously for 3,300 years. Since our ancestors stood at Sinai, we have continuously kept Judaism um, the same. We have the same, we just mentioned before the tefillin, for example, we put on the same tefillin. We keep Shabbos the same way as Moses did, um, kosher the same way. Um, Judaism is, although it's evolved somewhat, and we've done some class on how it's evolved, but it's by and large the same Judaism, same Torah for 3,300 years. And during the majority of that time, we Jews have lived in a diaspora. We were exiled during the first temple um, about 2,400 years ago after the destruction of the first temple. And since then, most Jews have lived outside the land of Israel. We've been spread across many nations and many cultures. Yet very few other nations survived that way. And here we are still today as Jews with a direct link to our ancestors. We have a history where we could go back, we could go back to every single generation. We know who lived in every generation, books that were written then, um, leaders of the Jewish people in each time, where Jews lived, how we lived in really every generation going back 3,300 years. Um, it's a direct link, a direct historic line with no breaks whatsoever. Um, we also are um, study the same Torah that our ancestors studied. Um, we keep the same commandments. We're read, speaking the same language, Hebrew, praying in the same language, studying the same language. We're still here 3,300 years later, the Jewish people, though we've been spread out in the diaspora. No other nation has survived in the same way. Very few have even survived for that long. No one else outside of their homeland. What then is the key? Many that did survive, they evolved. Their languages are not the same. Their religions are not the same. Their cultures are not the same. We've remained the same for 3,300 years. So what is the key to Jewish survival? So to know what the key to Jewish survival is, it's important to understand why most nations disappeared. Most nations disappeared, not due to war, because they were captured in war um, or persecution, but most nations disappeared due to assimilation. In other words, over time, they lose their identity. They become subsumed in other groups, whether due to other um, to political reasons, other they, they are part of living nearby other groups or other groups move in or they move out. And over time, nations and groups become assimilated into other groups. And history is really a long story of that, right? Where the English start as the Britons and then the Anglo-Saxons and then the um, Normans, and then they, they go from one group to another until eventually they become the English. And the same happens with, with, with essentially every group over the years, different tribes, different groups evolved, uh, mixed and separated and joined until then, that's how they keep changing. We Jews remained who we are because we've managed to never assimilate. We've survived, of course, thanks to God's protection. Um, we've never, we haven't been destroyed, although many try to destroy us, but we also never really assimilated. There were groups of Jews, there were individual communities, unfortunately, that did assimilate, but by and large, we Jews continue to survive and continue to thrive with our identity as Jews, with our beliefs, with our language, with our customs, with our traditions, with our culture. We have survived and we did not assimilate into the other cultures. 
although many other cultures tried to forcibly assimilate us, it didn't work. The Russian czars in the second half of the 19th century were worried about the Jewish problem before the Nazis thought of it. And the Russian czar had a solution to the Jewish problem. This is back in the late 1800s. One third of Jews were going to assimilate and become Russian. One third would immigrate and one third would be killed. That was their solution. But they tried to assimilate us, it never worked. We survived and we're still here today. How did we survive? So firstly, the most important reason we survived is thanks to God's protection. The Talmud says that we are like a sheep among 70 wolves. Without the shepherd, the sheep would never survive. The only way it's, there's the, in the Torah we speak of 70 nations, but we're sheep among wolves. The only way we Jews survive, if the most of the world wants to destroy us, always wants to destroy us. And believe it or not, most of the world still wants to destroy us today. The ADL does regular surveys of attitudes to Jews around the world. The, outside of this country, in Western Europe, most people around the world hate us. Thank God we don't live near them anymore. At least not too near too many of them anymore. There's still some around near us. Um, so they, want, they hate us and want to destroy us, but they also want us to assimilate. And yet God has protected us. But there's another reason. In addition to God's protection, there's a key factor. There's many factors, certainly, but there's a key factor, and maybe anti-Semitism has somewhat helped us not assimilate, but there's a key factor that's kept us surviving for so many years. The key to our survival has always been Jewish education. The Midrash in Shir Hashirim tells us, When God wanted to give us the Torah, God asked us for a guarantor. And originally we said, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they will be our guarantors. God said, no, they're not around anymore. They can't make sure that you keep Judaism, keep the Torah. So they said, our prophets, they're around. They'll be our guarantors. God said, that doesn't work. Don't listen to your prophets. And so the people said, our children will be our guarantors. God said, that's perfect. If your children keep the Torah, then it will pass on to the next generation. So the key to Judaism is to keep the children learning Torah, learning about Judaism, educate our children, and then they educate their children, and they educate their children, and that way Judaism and Jewish life survives. The Talmud tells us that there was a, in the biblical era, there was a wicked king called Ahaz. Ahaz was a Jewish king from the house of David who um, was wicked, disliked Judaism, rejected Judaism, and decided to destroy Judaism. But how do you destroy a religion? So he knew he was wise. He knew the key to Judaism. He said in the words of the Talmud, Im en gedayim en tiyashim. If there are no kids, there are no goats. If the children don't learn, don't practice, there will be no adults in the next generation. So he went after the children. He closed all the schools. Believe it or not, thousands of years later, the Soviet Union tried doing the same thing. 
When the Soviets came to power in the Soviet Union in 1918, they went about destroying religion in general. They were atheists. They wanted to destroy culture that wasn't communist, um, create their own culture. But they had a particular hatred towards Judaism. And they put a lot of effort in stamping out Judaism. So part of it was making certain Jewish practice like circumcision, uh, ritual slaughter, and other practices illegal. But you can't close the synagogues. They tried, but it was very hard. The place where they closed the synagogues, there were huge demonstrations in the early years. Jews would not, they gave up their, they stood in front of the tractors, not allowing them to demolish synagogues. And so they gave up very quickly. They couldn't destroy synagogues. They couldn't, it was even the circumcision, they, Jews kept doing it, even though it was illegal. Ritual slaughter, they kept doing it. It was very hard for the Soviets to stop, to stop us. But then they came up with another solution. They forcibly closed all Jewish schools, making it illegal to send your child to a Jewish school. And any parent caught sending their child to an illegal Jewish school, the children, the parents will be sent to the gulags and the children will be sent to an orphanage. They'll be raised as, um, raised as communists. My, we just named my son on Friday at his bris. We named him Raphael. He was named after my wife's grandfather. My wife's grandfather grew up in the Soviet Union in those days, um, in the 1920s. And he went to an underground Jewish school in a town in Ukraine called Bardichin. And he was, it was in the basement of a synagogue. They had a, they would take turns. One kid would stand by the window to check if there was anyone coming, if there was any, um, any um, police coming or anyone coming to catch them. And um, they had an escape route, um, but they were in, they were, he was 14 years old at the time. And um, they had a whole uh, class there in the basement. And uh, one day the kid who was supposed to be on the lookout um, fell asleep or wasn't paying attention and they were caught. And the teachers were sent to prison and the kids were all taken to prison where they were tortured to reveal who brought them to school, who their parents were, so they could arrest the parents um, and the like. And the kids stood strong, refused to share. They knew if they told them their real names and who their parents were, the parents would be arrested. Um, they wouldn't say who the teachers were. Um, eventually all the kids were sent to an orphanage uh, where with the help of the Jewish underground, they managed to escape. Um, South is actually her two grandfathers were both in the same class arrested together um, in that same class, they were 14 years old. But the Soviets were largely, though there was, there was an underground Jewish network of Jewish schools, um, the Soviets were largely successful. They knew the key, they knew the trick. By, they didn't stop Jews from going to synagogue, but they stopped the next generation from learning anything about Judaism. By, within 20 years after, this, uh, after the Soviet Union began, the whole next generation had no Jewish knowledge and was almost entirely assimilated. The only reason Soviet Jewry didn't assimilate entirely was thanks to anti-Semitism. They wouldn't let them take the name Jew off their identity cards. So the key, as the Soviets recognized, as King Ahaz recognized, the key to Jewish survival then is Jewish education. It's our focus on Jewish education throughout the generations 
that has allowed us to survive and allowed us not just to survive, but to continue thriving. Now, why is education so important to the Jewish future? So the truth is, firstly, education in general is the key to success in anything. If you're not taught something, you don't know it. Without knowing it, how do you live by it? You're not taught values. You don't know values. You don't live by values. In a society where we don't teach values, you don't have any values. Society doesn't teach basic math and science or language. You don't know how to express yourself. You don't know the basics of how our world works. You're not educated. You just don't know. Society doesn't teach Jewish society doesn't teach about Judaism. You don't know anything about Judaism. But even more so, in Judaism, our relationship with God is about knowledge and study. Torah, the Torah that God gave us, is not just an instructional guide telling us what to do. The Torah is God's gift to us. That we study Torah not just to become knowledgeable, but to build a relationship with God. Judaism is not just about belief in God. It's not just about praying. It's not about the commandments. It's a central tenet to Judaism is the study of Torah. Often we speak of three pillars in Judaism. Torah, service of God, and good deeds. But Torah is one of those three pillars that we have in Judaism. Why is Torah study so central to Judaism? Because we believe the Torah is the wisdom of God. God expressing himself through the Torah. The Torah is how God expressed himself. When we study Torah, what happens is the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Almighty, is now found virtually inside our brains. Creating the most powerful connection possible we can have with God. It becomes part of us. It's inside of us. So because the strongest connection we can have with God is through study, therefore study is central to Judaism. Can't just follow the commandments, not just pray or believe. you got to study. Study is one of the three pillars of Judaism. Now, in addition to this main reason, why Torah and Jewish education is so important, because study is a central pillar to Judaism, there are also additional factors. Judaism is very detail-oriented. Its prayers and its teachings are in Hebrew. There are 613 commandments, a lot of details, a lot of information. If someone doesn't have Torah knowledge, they're handicapped by their lack of knowledge their lack of details of the commandments. If they're not comfortable with the prayers, with Hebrew, they're not comfortable in the synagogue. They're not comfortable with the Torah reading. They're not comfortable with the various commandments. They don't know. They're not knowledgeable. So in order to really practice Judaism properly, you need to be knowledgeable. Even more so, we've been living for well over 2,000 years in a diaspora. We live within a non-Jewish culture around us. We pick up the culture, but without studying Judaism, we're not going to pick up what Judaism has to say. And for these reasons, Torah has always been central 
to our Jewish identity, to the continuity of Judaism. In fact, the way we appraise people in Judaism, we look up to people as scholars. Being a scholar was the greatest praise you can praise someone in Judaism. Not being rich, not being powerful, not being strong, but scholars. If you think of every Jewish hero we have in our history, Jewish heroes were not military heroes as they are in most cultures. They weren't wealthy people, definitely weren't sports heroes, weren't kings. Our Jewish heroes are our scholars. Who are the great, think of the great Jews of history. Rashi, Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rav Hashi, the great Rabbi Akiva, the greatest Jewish leaders, who were they? Scholars. In fact, leadership in Judaism was synonymous with scholarship. The greatest leaders were the greatest scholars. The greatest wish of any Jew was their child become a scholar. In fact, we bless every parent, the traditional Jewish blessing, um, when a child is born, um, what do you, you bless the child, the parent, what wish do you give them? So the traditional Jewish wish is you give, you wish the parents that their child grow up to Torah, marriage, and good deeds. But Torah is the first thing. You want them to become a scholar. It's the greatest thing. And so Judaism has always been focused on study and on scholarship and on knowledge, because that's the central pillar of our relationship to God, but the key to our survival. And that's why the Torah commands us, it's one of our 613 commandments in this week's Parsha and in other places, that we must teach our children. It commands adults must study on their own, that we must teach our children, it's not just children. Torah is a lifetime, Jewish education is a lifetime endeavor. And that's why Jewish education, particularly teaching the children, has always been a central part of Judaism. In the early days of Judaism, we know students were taught by their parents or by higher teachers. There wasn't a strong system for education. The Talmud tells us in the days of King Chizkiyahu, who was one of the later kings of Israel, um, lived about 2,500 years ago, there was a huge effort on his part to ensure that every child received a solid Jewish education. It's not clear exactly how they did it. Um, it likely was not done by building schools, but rather by building a testing system where children were tested by people, by scholars. Um, all children had to be tested in this kind of a regiment of what children needed to study. Um, but there may not have been a structure of actual schools. Um, it was only later during the Second Temple period that the high priest Yehoshua ben Gamla uh, created a public school system where every Jewish town and every Jewish village around the land of Israel had a school that was paid for by, paid for by the community, by the government, the Jewish government. Um, they would pay and support a public school and every parent sent their children to this Jewish school. The Talmud tells us that not long after the second, temp the second Temple was destroyed in the late 100s, there was a, a lot of Jewish schools in the villages and towns fell apart. And the great sage Rabbi Chiyam, who was the leader of Israel, traveled from town to town, from village to village with books 
the scrolls that they had at the time of Jewish knowledge and with um, and went from town to town building Jewish schools. Talmud says if not for Abchia, Torah would have been forgotten. He built Jewish schools all across Israel. And this system has stayed throughout our history. Every Jewish community, wherever we lived, had a schooling system where children were sent to schools. They weren't structured in the same way like schools today. It was generally every class was led by one teacher. It wasn't kind of a school building with a principal. It was rather every parent sent their children to various teachers. They usually had classes in their homes. They were usually in Eastern Europe, they were called cheder. Um, and so they, and the, uh, the but the, the, parent, the children were sent to these teachers. Um, usually it was a mix of private and public where there were some private teachers that were paid privately. And then there would be public teachers that would be paid by the community. But every Jew organized Jewish community had a Jewish education system and Jewish education was compulsory at least for elementary school until after, until a child was about 13. Um, it was usually for boys. Girls education only came in the early 20th century, it was not common. It did exist in some communities, but it was, was not common. Um, but definitely there was, at least for boys, Jewish education throughout our history. Starting in the 20th century, we built schools everywhere for, Jew, for girls as well. Now, Jewish education is not just for children. Jewish education is a lifetime endeavor. And we don't only have to teach our children, we have to teach ourselves. In fact, right after Moses' death, God appears to his successor, Joshua, Yehoshua in the book of Joshua, and tells him that the words of Torah should never leave your mouths. You should study, toil in Torah day and night. And indeed, throughout our history, Torah study was not just for scholars or rabbis. It was for all people. In many communities, we know in ancient Babylon, the Jewish communities, they had a system called Yarche Kala. Two months a year, they were mostly agrarian farmers. They were two months a year before the harvest and after the harvest during the months of Adar and Elul, what kind of months the farm was quiet. Um, everybody would go to yeshiva for a month where they would study. Every Jewish community had what was called Bate Midrash, a base medrash, Yiddishized pronunciation, a base medrash, a bit midrash, was not a synagogue, but a place for study. It was a big room usually, sometimes small rooms on the sides for classes with lots and lots and lots of books and tables and chairs, and people can come and study. Every community had bate medrash, places for study. And all these bate medrash were full. In the mornings before work, people would come and study. At nights, people would come and study. Over the weekends, people would study. On Shabbat, Shabbos, people would study. There were classes for men, classes for women. People would study alone. People would study in pairs. You read any account of life in the old country, it speaks about Jewish study. It was a central part of their lives. All adults, men and women, would spend spare time studying. And so, and this was this all, has always been a central part of Judaism. Every synagogue offered Jewish classes on different subjects at different times. Um, and people used their spare time to study, whether they were a recognized scholar or just a lay person with a basic Jewish knowledge, they would spend their time studying day and night. 
people retire when they got older, what they do in their spare time, they didn't have golf, didn't exist. There were no lawn balls. What did they do? They studied. That's what, that's what Jews did, they studied. And so the key to Jewish survival throughout our history has been Jewish education for children, for adults. And it has been a central part of Judaism. It has been a central part of every Jewish community, ensuring that every child had access to Jewish education, ensuring that adults had access to Jewish education, and focusing, ensuring that everybody was able to continue their studies. So Jews were very, very knowledgeable in Judaism, historically. Not only did every Jew read Hebrew, women also in almost every community read Hebrew. Um, not only did, were they fluent, knew how to read and write, and this is when around them, their non-Jewish neighbors didn't even know how to read their local language. They weren't literate at all. Jews were literate, knew how to read, read and speak Hebrew and write in Hebrew. Um, not only that, but Jews were knowledgeable. They knew the Torah. They knew the Midrashim. They studied Mishnah. They studied Talmud. They studied Halacha, Jewish law. They studied Drash, the um, life lessons in, in Judaism. We, we studied, we were knowledgeable. Now, unfortunately, today, we Jews in the United States, and the United States has this problem more than any, almost any other place in the world today, face a huge threat called assimilation. Today, our Jewish community in the United States is shrinking. Not due to emigration with people moving out of the country. In fact, more Jews are moving into the country than out of the country. But rather due to uh, low birth rates and due to assimilation. In other words, the Jewish community, the, each, each subsequent generation has less and less of a Jewish identity, less and less feels Jewish, and more and more people no longer consider themselves Jewish don't share it with their children or their grandchildren, and essentially their Jewish identity is lost. And it's a very unfortunate trend in this country. And um, because of that, our community is shrinking and quite quickly. It's a real challenge. And it is clear, there's been many studies, I'll talk about them in a moment. It is clear that this is largely due to maybe a number of factors, but the most important factor is due to a failure in this country of Jewish education. The United States of every major Jewish community in the world has the lowest number of Jews, low, lowest percentage of Jewish children getting a solid Jewish education. And has always had this problem since the beginning of this community going back about 150 years. Yes, Bart. Yeah, I just wonder if it's uh, even uh, before prior to, a contributing factor, probably a major contributing factor to this um, assimilation is um, intermarriage. And you haven't even mentioned that. Intermarriage is a contributing factor, but you have to remember intermarriage is a symptom, not a cause. In other words, somebody who has no Jewish identity has no reason to marry another Jew. Why, why, would, why would it matter to them? So you could tell them don't intermarry, but it doesn't mean anything to them. You have to have a very, very strong Jewish identity where, you know, their Jewish identity is more important than other factors about them. And so when they're looking for someone for a match, they're looking for someone 
who fits their identity, right? So if you have very strong Jewish identity, then you would marry Jewish. If you don't have a strong Jewish identity, you're definitely much more likely then you're not gonna marry Jewish. So it's more of a, I believe that intermarriage is more of a symptom. So, but we're focused here on the cause. And Rabbi, what about discrimination? If you're discriminated in a society, you're going to stay with your own kind. As you become more accepted, there's a lot more mixing and eventually it disappears. Say, I, I noticed um, blacks, you know, they're complaining, oh, you know, racial equality, but they're mixing a lot. Eventually there will be no black and white. <laughs> They'll just dissolve into one. I think one. you have a very good point. Definitely the fact that our freedoms and equality that we have is definitely a very big factor. Very good. You're absolutely right. Um, only that, there are other places where we have equal rights, like here in Western Europe, even in Canada, you know, in other modern countries where Jews have the same equal rights in South America. And we, we're not assimilating at least at the same rates as here in the United States. And what studies have shown, and there's been a lot of studies done in recent years, millions of dollars have been poured into trying to figure out the causes of assimilation. And what studies have shown continuously is that the, there's a number of different things, predictors of assimilation, um, of Jewish identity, of intermarriage, of other things that we know are you know, important symptoms of assimilation. And um, it's clear that the most important factor is Jewish education. Um, there are other factors we know that um, trips to Israel, Hebrew school, summer camp, synagogue membership, um, keeping Jewish holidays, all sorts of factors that factor in and lowering the assimilation rates. But the factor that stands out the most is Jewish education. Studies have shown that children that go to a Jewish day school just until fifth grade, it more than doubles a child's chance of marrying Jewish. And that's for Jews that weren't raised in religious homes. It more than doubles their chance of marrying Jewish. Uh, Rabbi? Uh, in, for someone who doesn't have any Jewish education, their chance of marrying Jewish is less than one in five. For someone with, um, for someone that, um, for someone that goes to a Jew, just to a Jewish day school um, and all other factors aside, it more than doubles their chance of marrying Jewish it dramatically. And as the Jewish education goes more and more, the numbers of their chances of having a very strong Jewish identity gets higher and higher. And there appears to be a very direct correlation between intermarriage, assimilation, um, and um, day school attendance. In fact, a study done country by country and looking at the percentage of children going to day schools and the intermarriage rates shows a direct correlation. And even among major Jewish population centers in the United States, where the day school rates are an equal from one to, one to the next, and places with higher Jewish day school attendance tend to also have lower assimilation rates. Susan. Okay, two things, if I can remember them. Okay, one is um, what turned me off to Judaism when I was a kid was that my parents forced um, us to go to, you know, religious school. And I hated it so much because I don't, the teachers were not taught how to teach. And there was no discipline. There's no, it was horrible. I, I just dreaded going every day to it. So I just, it, it helped me get kind of turned off to Judaism when I was a kid. 
So I'm just wondering if teachers are getting, are being trained to teach properly. I mean, I'm sure they all know the studies, this, you know, the information, but how to, to, you know, to, to get it out there. Excellent point, Susan. Thank you. And that really leads to our next point, which is what went wrong? Oh, what went wrong? So throughout most of Jewish history, most children had a proper Jewish education. It was central. The Jewish communities were responsible for providing that Jewish education. And we had a a Jewish education. We were young as we got older, and then we just continued our Jewish education through life. Here in the United States, we haven't been very successful. Other countries maybe today are less successful in Europe and England and France. Um, Germany today has a large Jewish community, even Canada, but they seem, or Australia, they seem to be doing much better. South America, Mexico, um, Argentina, Brazil have large Jewish communities. They're doing a lot better than the United States. Question is why? What went wrong? So firstly, almost every place that had Jews, historically, we created an organized central Jewish community, usually called the Kehillah, that took care of all communal needs. And one of those basic needs was providing public Jewish education. Here in the United States is one of the only major Jewish communities in our history where we never organized in central communities. Why? There's different theories, perhaps due to an independent streak in our culture, uh, maybe due to religious freedom in this country, so the government didn't require us to do so, but Jews never managed to band together to create a central Jewish community. And that's led to a lot of challenges for our community for that reason. Uh, We once did a class about the Kehila, about the central Jewish community, but without a central Jewish community, our Jewish institutions have always been a complex assortment of organizations that are often competing with each other for dollars. If you have it all centralized, then they allocate who gets what. Today, every organization's independent in every American city, every Jewish organization, there's lots and lots of Jewish organizations all fighting with each other for, um, for the limited financing and resources available. So that's probably one important factor. But in addition, when our grandparents first came to this country, they went from in the old country in the shtetl where their children attended Jewish education um, to over here where there was public education, secular education, compulsory public secular education. So they had to send their children to public schools. So to provide their children with Jewish schooling, what our immigrant grandparents, those that came mostly in the largest wave um, of immigrant Jews came between 1891 and 1914, about between two to three million Jews came in to the United States during that period. So what our grandparents did was they sent their children to Cheder, or was called Talmud Torah, was another name often given for it, which was usually two to three hours after school every day. So the school day ended at two, 230, and after school, they would go to Cheder, usually in a synagogue, and they would study usually till four or five o'clock. They would sit there and study with their teachers every single day, often on Sundays as well. Those Cheders didn't really work out too well for a number of reasons. Firstly, many, some of you may, may have lived through it, may, have recall, may uh, recall it. So firstly, it was a very long day. It was after school, they already had a long day in school, and after that, to then go to Cheder for another few hours, kids didn't appreciate it. Furthermore, the teachers were immigrants. They were teaching old school style, the way we taught, taught in the shtetl. They weren't able to relate to, they usually had accents. 
I've actually recently met a Jew um, who grew up going to, actually went to Jewish school and uh, he hadn't been involved in Judaism for many, many, many decades and a very older man. And uh, he told me you're the first rabbi I ever met without an accent. I have a little bit of an Australian accent, but he, when he grew up, all the rabbis had, you know, European accents. So the teachers were all um, European immigrants. Um, they were old school style, they had accents, they speak a good English, a lot of them, but they also were old style. They weren't trained in modern education techniques um, that are needed to relate to modern children. They also were um, old style, they weren't able to relate to the young children. So there was this relatability problem and this in their inability to really teach properly. They often taught in Yiddish because they didn't speak any other language. Um, and um, on top of all that, the children were, were, were with non-Jewish children all day in public school. And so they, the other kids went home and had fun in the afternoons and they couldn't. And so they would watch their non-Jewish friends the way they lived. And so as a result, the Cheder or Talmud Torah was not very successful. Um, within a generation, most of those children did not continue after their bar mitzvahs, did not continue studying. Um, and within a generation, they, they, and they left studying when they were 12 years old. You stop studying when you're 12, 13 years old, your Jewish knowledge is that of a 12 year old. Um, and they resented it usually because they had a very bad experience. Um, you know, teachers often used physical force, which was common in Europe. You know, they would discipline with, you know, with a stick and um, that was no longer acceptable in the 20th century in the United States. It wasn't popular, kids resented it. And so for that reason, it really fell apart. And so as a result, Jewish communities resorted to a once a week, twice a week, and some maybe even three times a week, Jewish Hebrew school. Now the Hebrew school, um, they, over time, they got better at teaching. They hired professional teachers that really knew how to teach, had teaching skills. Um, but as a result, but it, the two, and that's still what a very large percentage of Jewish children do today. But as a result, the two, three times a week, you get very little Jewish education. For you can come out barely knowing how to read Hebrew. Some they usually forget a few years later, let alone knowing anything about Judaism, studying Torah, studying Talmud, studying the basics, the you know, important works of Judaism. They've never really studied it because. Their, their Jewish education is that of a first grader, if that. And so, you know, the, the, what children know at the end of Hebrew school is the equivalent of what a child going to a Jewish school would know at the end of first grade or even before first grade, barely knowing how to read, right? Or knowing how to read without knowing what the words actually mean. And so, and so because of that, that's led to Jews feeling Judaism being very primitive, Jewish knowledge being very primitive, and Jews growing up with Judaism being, you know, making a Seder lining Hanukkah candles, but Jewish knowledge outside of that, the beauty of the Talmud and Jewish law and Jewish scholarship being totally foreign to most Jews, most Jews being totally aware of Jew, unaware of Jewish knowledge. So by the 1940s, it became clear now, the only way to keep Judaism alive in this country is to actually create Jewish day schools that will provide both a Jewish and secular education for the children. You cannot rely on public schools with a Talmud Torah system. What we really need is a Jewish and secular education where the Jewish education does not come at the end of the day, but comes earlier in the day. 
um, where the Jewish educate, where the children are being raised in a Jewish environment, and where they're being taught by professional teachers um, in a well-developed school with proper curriculums, where the children are learning, getting a solid knowledge in Judaism, so that by the end of first grade, they're reading Hebrew fluently. By the end of elementary school, they speak, they can read and write in Hebrew. They're studying Chumash that finished the whole Torah by the end of elementary school. And by middle school, they're studying Mishnah. They're studying Talmud. They have knowledge of Jewish law, Jewish traditions, Jewish teachings, Jewish values, Jewish beliefs, let alone a fluent, fluency in Hebrew, in Aramaic, which Talmud and other Jewish works are written in. So it became, we recognized that that was the, and then, of course, alongside that, we have to offer a secular education. The biggest problem, so schools, as, as a result, in the 1940s, schools opened across the country. Earlier, I spoke about the previous Rebbe. He was instrumental in opening schools, the early schools um, across the United States. He opened many of the early schools here in this country in the 1940s, the day schools. So as a result, many, many day schools opened here. However, only a very, very small percentage of Jewish children actually went. Um, throughout, generally, it was about 10% of Jewish children that actually went to Jewish day schools. The biggest challenge was funding. Because, as we mentioned earlier, this, um, the Jewish communities in the United States are not well organized, so there's no communal funding. So every school had to raise its own money either from tuition that the parents were paying or from communal donations, usually a mixture of both. Now, Jewish education in the United States is also a lot more expensive than it ever was in Europe because we can't just have children sitting in the teacher's house studying. We need to offer secular education. We need the Jewish education to be on par with modern schooling. We need professional teachers that are trained, that have teaching degrees, that know how to, that know modern teaching techniques. We need curriculums, structured curriculums. So schooling, we need proper classrooms, proper instruction. Today, this technology that's involved, smart boards and, um, and um, laptops. And so it's very, became, it's very, very expensive. So as a result, unfortunately, um, many parents, that uh, schools were forced to charge <laughs> tuition. Many parents couldn't afford it. And that's almost certainly the single reason why most parents didn't and don't send their children to Jewish schools. They simply can't afford it. Or even if they can, it's very expensive. That's not what they want to spend on. In addition, as a result, many of the schools were not adequately equipped because of underfunding. And as a result, the education quality wasn't that great. And so further, parents didn't want to send their children to bad schools. Maybe they want the kids mm -hmm. to go to like Harvard and Stanford. Sorry? Yeah, uh, can I make a comment? Yeah, this is Bart. Uh, I just wanted to relate our experience. Of course, uh, uh, our, we have two granddaughters and uh, one of them, Erin uh, Monique, uh, okay. Sandy got her involved in Tarboot for, School. From first grade. From first grade, actually. No, she was at Hebrew My Academy. My mom passed away and we- um, we used the inheritance to pay for Tarboot in Orange County. No, it was one of the best Hebrew things. Academy. Well, I started with Hebrew Academy. Excellent. It, it, uh, that was an excellent school. I just want to pass that on to anybody that's interested. Excellent. And, Thank you for sharing. 
instead of buying a Mercedes, uh, we bought, uh, we paid for her education, which was kindergarten through uh, high school at Tarboot and um, Hebrew Academy. And it's one of the best things we ever did. Excellent, thank you for sharing. Now, one of the biggest challenges we face here in the United States um, that other countries don't face is the lack of public funding for our education. In most countries around the world, government funds private education, at least the secular part of the private education. So in Australia, where I grew up, the government at least significant, gives significant funding to the schools um, in some provinces in Canada, in England, in France, in Germany, um, in Israel, for sure, it's entirely funded. Um, but the schools are largely funded, at least a big percentage of it is funded by, the, by government funding. Here in the United States, in most states at least, there is very little funding or zero funding in California for, for private education. So today, our Jewish community in the United States faces assimilation with a very large intermarriage rate. Most Jews have minimal knowledge of Judaism. It's clear there's been a lot of money put into studies done as to how to counter that assimilation. There's an organization called Avichai um, that is focused just on that studies on how to counter counter assimilation. And what they concluded early on is that the single best investment is investment in Jewish education. And they've therefore invested hugely in trying to improve school quality and trying to, in, of Jewish schools and trying to get Jews into, uh, Jewish children into Jewish schools. The good news is that we face today a Jewish renaissance. The failures of our culture is pushing Jews today to re-explore their roots. At the same time, there's been a lot of failure in the public education system across the country. Failure to instill values in our children. Failure to adopt modern education needs. Education has really changed, the society has changed in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and unfortunately, public schools are government entities that change very, very slowly, especially, especially the larger systems, so they're not adequate. And um, also, in, in addition for public school systems have often failed in general to provide adequate education. And that's true, that was true before the pandemic began a year ago and almost all public schools in the country shut down, many of which have not since not even opened, including all schools and public schools in LA County. And, um, and as a result, almost entirely destroyed the public school system. We're yet to see the long-term impacts of it. So the good news for Jewish education is there are a lot of parents today that are willing and would like to give their children Jewish education. Today, there's about 300,000 children in Jewish schools across, across the country at a cost of about 10 to $15,000 per student in the, that's the schools that are, this fancier school that charge that, where it's a lot more, but that real cost is 10 to $15,000. Here in California, it's on the higher end because we have a higher living cost. It's about $15,000 per child. Um, so we're talking about $4 billion around the country today spent on Jewish education. It's a huge amount of money. All private funding funded largely by parents, probably about 70, 80% by parents, the rest by donors or communal organizations. But that's less than 20% of the total number of children. Pew estimates that there's about 1.7 million Jewish children in the US. 
less than 20% of you are going to Jewish education. We can probably double that number if we had the funding for it. Many parents simply cannot afford it, especially if they have more than one child. You're talking about spending, if you have two children, $30,000 a year. Um, a lot of parents don't have that money. Um, even if they do, for many, it's not a priority. They don't wanna give up the Mercedes that Bart was talking about earlier or their annual vacation. So there are, so what can we do today to help? We can, there are parents that would send their children to Jewish schools if they could, what can we do? So there's three different things that can be done. These are, this is very important. This is a topic, as you can see, I'm very passionate about. Um, I spend a lot of my time focused on our school over here. We've invested huge amount of energy and finances in building our Jewish day school here in this community, and um, which is why I'm very passionate about it. Um, but there are three ways we can help. Two are more of a long-term issue, one of them long-term solution. Number one is education vouchers. A number of states, Florida, Louisiana, already offer significant vouchers for private education to cover the, secular, the cost of secular education in private schools. I believe that for us as Jews, this is the single most important domestic policy for the Jewish community. And we as Jews need to advocate, at least domestically, we need to advocate for private educational vouchers, uh, educational vouchers to private schools. It's a, not a federal thing, it's a state thing. Some states offer it, a handful of states do um, to varying degrees. Um, California does not offer anything. Um, we need to lobby our um, politicians. And uh, generally I try to mix out of politics, but this is the single most important issue for the Jewish community today to ensure Jewish continuity. We want the secular part of the education Jewish day schools to be funded by, the by our tax own tax dollars that we're paying. Um, some states like Arizona give you an option where you could send your state tax dollars towards tuition which itself would be definitely a partial solution. Others like Florida and Louisiana and a number of other states actually offer vouchers towards education. Um, at least for lower income, I think um, Louisiana offers for everyone. So, um, and I believe we, we, need, we really as a community need to work towards that. Um, unfortunately, we don't share that. Um, too many Jews perhaps don't, aren't aware of the need um, and we definitely haven't made our voice public the way we need to. That's a long-term solution. A second more of a long-term solution is um, there are large Jewish organizations today that do raise a lot of money. Unfortunately, the, most of those organizations are not spending enough money on Jewish education. And we need to lobby those organizations where we do send our donations to, that if they're gonna be doling out money to various Jewish causes, they need to be putting a very significant percentage. I believe a minimal of 50% um, has to be going towards Jewish education. In communities where their federations and their um, Jewish appeals and their other large funding organizations are giving big amounts of money to Jewish education, there is much, much more, much higher um, 
there are much higher um, numbers of children going to Jewish day schools. An example is the Chicago Jewish community has historically given large amounts of money to Jewish education, and they have the highest rates of Jewish, non-Orthodox of Jewish, of Jewish day school attendance. But then those two are both long-term solutions. But on the short term, what we can each do is we must start small. We ourselves must do whatever we can to help fund our own local Jewish day schools. We have to reach out to friends and others and encourage them to do whatever they can to fund Jewish day schools. We've built a Jewish day school here in our community. We now have close to 80 children in the school um, over here. It's extremely expensive to run and we try to, we charge tuition, but we try to keep it as low as we can. We run it on a loss. Uh, we don't, we charge them just the bare minimum, but not any overhead costs, uh, which we are funding ourselves. We also offer a lot of scholarships. And um, because of that, thankfully, we've been able to do it thanks to the generosity of a number of people in our community. Uh, we have a number of people in our community who are sponsoring children, um, which is, our tuition is about 16,000 a year. And we have people who are sponsoring children um, here in the school and uh, anybody who can, would strongly encourage you to do so. Let me know if you have the ability to sponsor a Jewish child in a day school, um, or if you know somebody else who can, or even a part tuition to help our school and help more children come to Jewish day school. Now, in addition to that, in addition to that, um, while finances remain the biggest challenge to all parents, to Jewish education, and I believe we can double our numbers if we had adequate financing, um, this is across the Jewish community um, of Jewish education. And that way that would be an extreme, that would counter Jewish, that would counter the slide towards assimilation. I should mention just one other thing. Maybe I should have mentioned this earlier. England was a little bit ahead of us on this. England has an organized Jewish community. Um, the, uh, has a very organized Jewish community, uh, unlike here in the United States. And in England, um, back in the late nineties, they noticed also high assimilation rates. And they um, did studies as have been done here to try to figure out how to counter it. And they came to the same conclusion, um, recognizing that the, the response was um, Jewish education. Over there, thankfully, the government partially sponsors, uh, funds Jewish private schools, but it wasn't enough. And so they made um, two decisions, which was firstly, that the funding of the Jewish community, which is very organized, was going to go, a very large percentage was gonna to go towards Jewish day schools to make it much, much cheaper for parents to send their children to Jewish schools. Secondly, the rabbis and the leadership across the community would together advocate for parents to send their children to Jewish schools in a coordinated effort. They started this effort about 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago. In the years since the, from a population where less than 20% of the parents were sending to Jewish schools in England in the 90s, today more than 50 or maybe it's more than 60% of Jewish children in England are going to Jewish schools today. Not only more children are going to Jewish schools today, um, assimilation rates have come down dramatically. Their marriage has come down. Synagogue membership has come down. Over the long run, I once heard this from Rabbi Sachs, who, um, the former chief rabbi, over the long run, not only did they help the Jewish community, but they even increased their funding. More members in the Jewish community 
stronger Jewish attendance, increased Jewish funding overall. So it even paid, it was a good long-term investment financially for them. And they've really turned around the tide of assimilation in England um, to a very large extent, thanks to this move. We need to do the same here in the United States on a whole, here in Los Angeles in particular, in our local community, we can do, we really can do the same thing. So it's partially working on the funding. Part of it though, is also convincing parents of the importance of it. And so I encourage you all to reach out to, um, if you know people who you have your own children or people who have children, encourage them to send their children to Jewish schools. Today, thankfully, not only are Jewish schools offer solid Jewish educations that give a solid Jewish, strong Jewish identity. As I mentioned, you learn more in first grade in a Jewish day school than you'll learn in seven years of Hebrew school. Our first graders in our Jewish day school here know more Hebrew, understand more Hebrew. They're already studying Chumash, the Torah, um, and read Hebrew fluently and can easily outdo our seventh graders in our own Hebrew school here, which is a great Hebrew school. And, um, and that's just because they're putting more of a focus they'd be every day going to school. But not only that, um, Jewish day schools today, thankfully, are better equipped than the public schools. Our school, the um, academic le level in our school is higher than the local public schools, which are among the best in the state. Um, and not only do we focus on academics, but we also focus on the wholeness of the child, teaching values, um, teaching uh, motivation, teaching interpersonal skills. Um, so we're teaching many other skills, many based on our Jewish values um, that they wouldn't get in public school. So parents have every reason to send. And so we need to not only help with funding, but also in convincing parents and the importance of it. Sandy wanted to ask something. I'm just going to conclude because I'm running over time and then I'll give you, I'll open it up to questions. Sure. But not only do we have to invest in education for our children, we have to invest in education for adults. It is never too late to study. You can always study. Um, you can always learn more and educate yourself. You can always teach yourself at any age. It is never too late. And that is why we at the JCC offer so many classes. Um, I teach many classes myself almost daily. I have daily classes. Uh, and today they're all virtual. You don't have to go anywhere. Doing them all on Zoom or on Facebook. You're welcome to join Rabbi Yossi teaches classes here, Rabbi David. Um, and so we're all teaching here. We're offering many classes Take advantage of them. Educate yourself. You don't even have to take classes. You can go online. There's so much available today. I've created my own podcast of all my Sunday morning classes. I have well over 100 classes there. You can listen to it. It's on Spotify or iTunes. Just search for Torah Cafe. Um, you can go on our website, JCCMB. We have tons of audio classes, video classes, um, just for those that enjoy reading, um, information to read. There's so much to study. And I encourage you to continue studying. You need to educate yourselves and educate others. Most Jews don't even realize how limited their Jewish knowledge is until you point it out to them. They don't even realize that they've never really studied the Torah. I often ask people, they tell me they, 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 that when I often ask people, have you ever studied, read the Torah before? Most people haven't. Let alone open a book of Talmud or studied about various Jewish topics like we do here. And so I would encourage you to continue coming to this class. Um, join us next week. We're gonna talk about the manna next week, the manna from heaven. Um, but I encourage you also not only to um, join yourself, but to encourage others. 
And we have this class here. We're also, we have our Friday class and we'll, you know, I encourage you to join every Friday. We go through the weekly parish. I do it briefly on our Sunday morning classes, but I spend an hour going through it in great detail and talking about practical lessons we can take from the parish on Friday at noon. It's also on Zoom, you can join us then. We're also gonna be starting a six week course on Wednesday. It's gonna offer a morning and afternoon option on February 3rd about the soul called Journey of the Soul. Um, I encourage you to join us for that. But what I'd like you to do is to, as soon as you get out of this class, as soon as you turn off your Zoom, um, you gotta do these things straight away or else you forget. But I'd like you to do is take an action right now towards Jewish education. So when you get off the Zoom or for those watching on Facebook, when you leave Facebook, um, what I'd like you to do is take out your phone, find five Jewish contacts and text them, inviting them to our Sunday morning class next week. Okay. Invite five Jewish contacts. Say, please come join me. Join at jccmb.com forward slash virtual Torah cafe and uh, invite them to join at 9.30 a.m. I'm certain if you text five people, at least one of them will come. You'll have a positive impact. It's not enough just to text them now. What you have to do is when they say yes, for those that said yes, I'll come, you have to then next week on Sunday morning, you have to send them a text reminder. Otherwise they may not, they may not join. They may forget. So, but do it now as soon as you as soon as you finish today, please invite five people to the class. Let them learn how much more there is to know. Let them learn the beauty of Torah, the beauty of Judaism. That is the key to our survival. So I encourage you both to um, help us help with Jewish education in general, both, um, as we said earlier, I gave three options, three things we need to do, advocate politically for vouchers for private schools, um, advocate for our communal organizations to give greater funding to Jewish schools, and then support our own local school, as well as convince parents you know to send their children to Jewish schools. But then on top of that, I encourage you to reach out to other adults, educate yourself, reach out to other adults. And I think everyone can do it. It's really easy. You all have at least five Jewish contacts in your, um, in your <laughs> phone. Certain you do. Go through it. Scroll, scroll down you have and uh, find five Jewish contacts. Invite them to join us. I thank you all for joining. I'm going to open. I know there's a lot of questions. Um, again, next we're going to talk about the mana. I'm going to open it to some questions uh, for those who. Let's start with Bob.